0: Get him married!
1: Hello again everybody, welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy where we talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their families and those we serve. You know it never ceases to amaze me just how special some of the folks are that that serve in our ranks. Uh, I meet some of the neatest people and and some of the most diverse backgrounds and, and here with us today is probably one of the best examples of that. We have Mr. Josh Gale. Now Mr. Gale is a Border Patrol agent and he's from the Laredo West Border Patrol Station. He's on detail with us here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. Josh, thanks for being here.
0: Well, thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate being here and this opportunity.
1: So what are your thoughts so far being here at the Academy versus being out in the field? Well, uh,
0: with what's going on right now out in the field, uh, it is a welcomed break for sure. Um, But uh, given the chance to pour into the next generation, the new generation of Border Patrol agents coming to our sectors, we need them, and uh, I'm really excited to see what this generation of Border Patrol agents brings to the patrol in 10 to 15 years from now.
1: Well, especially where you're working right now. So you're at Laredo West. So Laredo sector is one of the, the busier sectors in the Border Patrol along the southwest border in South Texas. So you have it, you have the Rio Grande Valley sector, you have Del Rio, Texas. All sectors are busy right now, but, but really, uh, you guys are, are experiencing some of the biggest uh, the brunt of the, of the surge.
0: Yes sir. Uh, Every day you go to work you got to be ready to work. Mm -hmm. Um, When you go home it's just
1: an adrenaline dump and uh, the next day you just pick it up and continue to push on through the shift. So you've been in since uh, since October of 2007 so if my Oklahoma math is right that's about 14 years. Yes sir. Coming Coming up up, on 14 years. And you were class 720. Yes sir. So I ask this of everybody. Do you know your class chant? So I knew it yesterday because I knew you were going to ask, <laughs> and now I'm having a brain fart. Uh, uh,
0: if I remember it, I will.
1: I will bring it up. Okay, out. <laughs> uh, sounds good. Sounds good. So you still keep in touch with some of your classmates? Ah uh, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, most of my classmates. And did everybody go to South Texas whenever you uh, when you graduated, or where did they go?
0: Uh, for the most part, we all went to Catula and Laredo. Uh, we did have some folks go to San Diego and and Yuma.
1: Well, for those that don't know, Mr. Gale, uh, Josh. Let me tell you a little bit about So well, he's been with the Border Patrol now for about, uh, or about 14 years, but prior to that, prior to that he served for nine years in the U.S. Army with the elite U.S. Army Rangers. And he brings with that service some very interesting experiences, not the least of which uh, two particular uh, items of note. He was involved in 2003 in the invasion of Iraq, the Battle of the Haditha Dam, and in two thousand and five, he actually he and his team took part in Operation Red Wings too, and I want him to talk a little bit about what that was, what each of those what the, those operations were, and uh, and kind of what you and your team did. So let's let's talk first about the uh, Battle of the Haditha Dam. What was that, and and what did it do for our efforts over there?
0: So uh, at the beginning of the war, um, when the war kicked off, we were in a tin can flying into Western Iraq, and we jumped into Western Iraq. Um, about 500 feet, uh, there was, there was no burn barrels, no anything on the ground. We were sent in to secure a desert landing strip to connect the outside forces that were not in Iraq yet to the objectives in Baghdad and stuff like that. And so we jumped into Western Iraq and we were only supposed to be there for a couple of days. I spent about seven days, uh, there through my birthday. And then on, uh, the thirty, the 30th of March, uh, we started to drive to the Haditha Dam. The Haditha Dam connected Western Iraq uh, to Eastern Iraq, and we had a large convoy that was moving across the desert that needed to get into Baghdad. And uh, that, was, that was where they were going to cross, so somebody needed to seize it. And we knew very little uh, intel prior to going. As you can imagine, we're, <laughs> we just jumped into Western Iraq. We're moving across the desert. Uh, the night prior, I was told, Hey, we're we're seizing objective. Um, A lot of Saddam's uh, special forces are going to be up there. Uh, But don't worry, we're prepping the objective with a a lot of preparatory fires, you know, dropping bombs and stuff like that. So it should be relatively easy. Uh, They lied. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I remember when we got on the dam, I actually didn't know where I was at first because the sun hadn't come up yet. And we had driven past our objective, where we were supposed to be. And I remember all of a sudden people started shooting and I, I didn't, I didn't have any targets opportunity yet. Still didn't even know where I was. And uh, our Humvee turned around and and drove back and our Humvee had the command element in, in my Humvee. And we were all in light skinned uh, units. So there was no armor, no nothing. It was just roll bars. And, uh, we get to the, the Southern side of the dam. And there's a massive amount of complexes and there's foxholes dug everywhere. And the command element needed to get into a position to be able to have comms. And not much fighting had started yet, but the command element got out. And when they got out, my platoon, they took, took off to our objective. Well, we had to wait for the command element. So the command element told us, go down this road here and you'll link up with your platoon. And so we did. They didn't tell us there was going to be a left turn. <laughs> so we drove right into an area. And I remember looking to the right, and it was a, it was a shooting range. And all the targets were, were concrete targets, and they had a human silhouette. And all of them were, sh- were shot out right here, right? And all of a sudden, I got this feeling in my stomach, like, we are not where we're supposed to be right now. And it was only four of us in the in the Jeep at the time. I had the driver, Albert. the TC was main, in the back we had Pitts. Uh, he was on a 240 and I was on a Mark 19, I was on the top. And all of a sudden I looked around and I knew we weren't in the right place, so I started hitting the top of the Humvee. Hey, you need to get out of here. Like, we are not in the right spot. And it was when I started hitting the Humvee, all of a sudden I heard a, a battle cry from the enemy. And I... And, like, they all stood up at the same time. It was about 40 to 60 dudes just all got up in this trench line. And they were from me to about 40 feet away. And my first instinct was to duck inside this Humvee that had no armor in it, right? But, you know, preservation of life. And simultaneous with that thought was, if I do duck inside this Humvee as the one on the main gun, I will never be able to look at myself in the mirror ever again. You need to stand up and take what's coming to you. This is your turn. And I immediately said, God, I'm coming. Um, I hope you have a spot for me. And uh, and right as all these things are going through my head, I also thought about Black Hawk Down when, um, I forget his name, but he gets shot in the face. He falls inside the Humvee, and it was my turn. And so I stood up, ready to take it. They fired the first RPG. It landed in front of the Jeep blew up he started spinning it around well the mark 19 weighs 98.2 pounds i have a whole thing of ammo on this thing and then uh, another bucket of ammo and uh so as he starts to make the turn i lift up on the handle which which releases and i just start spinning in circles and so like i I whip past the enemy once right (laughs) and i get to the second time and right as i get there i lock it down Right when I locked it down, that's when a round hit me in my back. And uh, I I was ready for it. I I was ready. I thought I was going to die. Like any moment, I was going to be standing in front of St. Peter. And uh, um, I just looked at them. I turned my my jacket towards one side. It was kind of an ambush. They had somebody behind us and all those guys in front of us. The guys behind us, there was only like three or four. It was a little RPG team and they're the ones that hit me. The 60, they, they were firing, and that was my first experience of having bullets shot at my face, which is very unnerving. But uh, it's odd because everything slows down, and you can see the rounds coming at you. And as they crack by you, uh, your head kind of jolts towards it. Like you know you shouldn't, but you know it just feels like they're so close. And all of a sudden, we start turning, and that RPG team also fires another RPG and I thought it was coming right from my face. I mean, it looked really close. And I remember just kind of backing up and watching it fly right over my head. And uh, I turned the gun sideways and I turned my body, like I said, so that my armor was protecting me. And I just held the trigger until it went ka-chunk. But I, I just littered that entire trench line with 40 mic mic or 40 millimeter grenades uh, which kept the enemy down enough for us to get out of there and the whole time I remember hearing I'm hit I'm hit Uh, we had six RPGs in that ten seconds that were fired at us and as we're driving out um, after the main battle I just had this calm like everything was going to be okay right? you were just in there and I have a spot for you but it's not your time yet. Just to back up real quick, before the battle, we were in RR Saudi Arabia, and we were planning on doing the jump into Baghdad. That was our mission. In fact, I could land you in Baghdad International Airport and show you where I was supposed to land, the buildings that I was supposed to clear, how many rooms and levels are in each one of these buildings, where the gas tank is, where, where all of it was, where all of it still is probably. and. I remember we had Bible studies prior to jumping in. We were supposed to take 70% casualties going into this and all of us were pumped. When they canceled that mission, we were we were disappointed. But that was when President Bush announced that the war was starting. I stuck us in the plane and said we got something different. Jumped us into western Iraq, but before that in the Bible studies, we always we prayed that God would obviously protect us, but that he would do something that Everybody that was involved, uh, they would know that he was watching over us. And in that in that battle, I just had that calm after the battle. And I wanted to address first of all who was hit. So I yelled at Maine because Maine was uh, the TC, right? He was in the passenger seat. So Maine, are you hit? And he said, No, I'm not hit. I'm like, Oh well, crap! It must be Pitts in the back on the 240. Pitts, are you okay? He's like, Yeah, I'm fine. I'm not hit. Well, that only leaves one other person in here, and that's the driver. So Maine, who's hit? Is it Albert? Yeah, Albert's hit. So he took a round through his foot, and it was a million dollar wound, right? And we drove up to the top, and that immediate adrenaline, adrenaline dump from, from the firefight, Maine, he's scared to death. You know, we're like, what just happened, and how did we survive? So I called for a medic and the medic came over and started treating Albert. Well, Albert was the only mechanic that we had on, on the mission. And they sat Albert down right next to the vehicle and he looks and he notices that it's leaking oil. And he goes, if you don't move this vehicle where it needs to go right now, you, it's gonna stay right here. This is gonna be where you're gonna, where you're gonna use it for the rest of the time it's here. So I said, Maine, get in that driver's seat and drive me back up to that high point. So he drives me up to this high point. as we're getting up there, he's built up enough speed in the think of chunks. And he puts me up on top of this hill and he rolls me right down into this area where I just get to see everything. Uh, we were up there to do a mission and I just got done getting ambushed. They hit two out of four of us in there. And for us to be able to clear the objective in such a manner was... It was just better than being in the middle of it. What
1: well, you had just gone through and you said this, all of this that you described took place in the space of 10 seconds, but it felt like it was slow motion. Very slow. One of the things that happens where you were shot in the back, literally. Yes, sir. You had your armor. Yes, sir. So that saved your life, probably.
0: Yes, sir. It would have went through my kidney, my bladder, and my spleen.
1: And so you had uh, 50 plus individuals that uh, had every intent on killing you and your team. Yes, sir. You come out the other side of that and you are assessing and you still have your objective. you have to take and you find yourself in a position to basically end those hostilities pretty quickly. I
0: have the high ground and uh, when we were on the high ground uh, we were able to keep it and hold it and clear the the parts out so I was able to uh, lay suppressive fire for the moving elements down in these uh, in these like little cave systems that they burrow down there uh, little fighting positions Um, and uh, that, started, that day started um, more American ordnance being dropped and at the time than ever in the history of war in one spot. So I was supposed to be there for five hours. I ended up being there for 28 days. And for the first seven days, we got shot at by more artillery than any unit since World War II. The A-10s and the fast movers, F-16s, I think. Uh, They came and just dropped ordnance, and it didn't stop for about seven days. I still remember the last artillery round that was shot at us. Um, With all that artillery, artillery is very scary. Uh, You just hear the thumps in the background, and you know what's coming, right? So you hear the and then you just wait, because the whistle is coming next. And I believe still to this day, I could give you a whistle that's going to put a round really close to us, or I could give you a whistle that's going to send the round over us.
1: You just had that much experience after that uh, That many 28 days. Yes. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what the strategic importance of that dam was for the U.S. effort there and, and for the country of Iraq.
0: So about five days after seizing the dam, um, that main uh, convoy that was moving across Iraq needed to get to the eastern side of Iraq to take Baghdad. and I have met so many people that uh, have been on that convoy, because it was huge. It was, I mean, I couldn't even guess how many vehicles were in it It just never ended. And vehicles I have never seen since. Like, just the most creative vehicles I've ever seen and all different countries. And uh, so, yeah, I was in the main Jeep that escorted this convoy across. I mean, it was something else.
1: And this dam actually was one of the only, if not the only one, that crossed the Euphrates River that allowed you access to Baghdad.
0: So the, the the dam is on the Euphrates River, yes sir.
1: And that dam also was responsible for a very large portion of the electricity supplied to the country. Yes, yes sir. About a third or so?
0: Um, I don't remember the statistic, but most of Baghdad was powered by this dam. And see, there was a lot of rumors at the beginning of the war that... The dam was rigged to explode and Saddam wanted to destroy the dam and kill half his population. There was nothing on there ready to explode. Um, And we just wanted to keep the dam running because we're Americans and those are women and children living in in that that city that need electricity. And uh, so we wanted to keep the dam running. So we seized the people that were inside the dam and we treated them very, very nicely. We put them in a nice room. There was no cuffs, no bags, no nothing. Uh, they, they were allowed to pray every day and they would just tell us, you know, we need to go to this part of the dam in order to, you know, do whatever to keep this thing running. And we'd give them an escort and take them down there and they would do whatever they needed to do to keep the dam running. And uh, we started developing relationships uh, with these individuals. It was, it was quite interesting to learn because you know they were all from the the town of Aditha and they were they were scared Um, you know they heard everything that was going on they were worried for their families and it was uh, kind of funny they thought we were the only force in Iraq so most of them showed a lot of concern for us like you know Saddam's gonna kill you you know you you should be pretty worried and we just developed a relationship it was It's pretty cool. Unexpected.
1: And that was during one of the five tours that you did in Iraq and Afghanistan during your nine years of service. Yes. That was back in 2003. So let's fast forward a little bit and let's go to an operation that's pretty well known by most people in this country I think and that was Operation Red Wings 2. Talk a little bit about what that was and what your team's role in that operation.
0: So Operation Red Wing uh, which is very commonly known as the Lone Survivor when, when the Chinook got shot down after the team had been compromised, we were about to deploy uh, to Afghanistan in about a week or two. I don't remember exactly. Uh, one day I showed up for work and all of our D and C bags were palletized, which was very uncommon because that's the last thing you do right before you leave is palletize your D and C bags. I was like, well, what's going on? I walked in my patinsar and said, Hey, yeah, uh, call your wife. Uh, we're leaving right now. There was a Chinook that got shot down and uh, Second Bat is already coming home. All their stuff is already on the plane. Our stuff is already over there. Like we need to go up there and rip out with Second Bat. So uh, I found myself on an airplane just a couple of hours flying over to Afghanistan. And I remember we got there and it was extremely hasty, loading up, this is our plan. And I still remember they were going to land us on a, a mountaintop right where the Chinook was shot down. Uh, they had already blown all the trees and we couldn't land, so I had to jump. We had to jump off the back. And our objective was to go to Saeed Mohammed's house, which was not too far, straight line distance, but you know, when you're walking over the mountains, 25 miles, I made it a mile. And uh, um, so I'm the chalk leader of the very first chalk to the mountains. And that's when they tell me, Hey, look, this is where the Chinook got shot down. So you need to get off this thing, get off it fast. So this guy's hovering and we just all jump out. And I find the first aren't for a second bed, And, uh, since I'm the chalk leader, I got to get, you know, where the CCP is, where the, where the command and control is at, where our security's at, etc. And I walk up to the first sergeant and I'm Hey, first aren't you know, I'm in charge here. What do you got? And he goes, Blue clackers are the chemlights for the, or blue chem are the clacker claim for the claymores. Uh, CCPs C- on top of the hill, and the 80 seconds all around us. He pats me on the back, and he goes gets in, and I'm like, well, crap, not much <laughs> yeah, off Yeah, yeah. Now what? Right. So I I set everybody up in in security formation, tell them, hey, look, don't shoot at everything that moves because you know the 80 seconds all around us. You know, just kind of lay low. My platoon sergeant is the next one in. And he comes up to me and I patted him on the back. (laughs) I told him those exact same three things, and he's looking at me like, What else? And uh, I'm like, That's it. That's all I got. He's like, Well, that's great. So, you know, he's walking around trying to figure out. But uh, that night, being 10,000 feet on a mountainside after being, you know, sea level a day and a half prior huge huge difference. Yeah. um, So, Sarn Strait said, You know, hey, we don't know what's out here. So, we're going to pull 50% security but I want everybody to get maximum rest, right? We don't want to shoot anybody that we're not supposed to. Yeah, obviously, if it's bad, uh, take care of business, but let's try to lay low, get as much rest as you can. And I kept falling asleep, and every time i fall asleep, like five minutes later, I'd wake up gasping for air. And I don't think I slept much that entire night.
1: I can't imagine, I mean, so 10,000 feet elevation, so you're basically two miles up when you're used to being at sea level, plus you're in an area like that where you're your adrenaline's going, you're worried. Yes, sir. And so probably sleep was not high on the list of priorities for your body to do at that moment. No, no <laughs> it was not.
0: Uh, so uh, our mission was there was one more seal still left in the mountains. Um, Marcus Trell had already been taken home, I believe. But uh, the one seal that we were up there to, to find was Axe. Um, they had a few places, his last known locations, few places he could have been. Um, but uh, uh, he was presumed dead, but we weren't sure. And so they kept changing the mission. So first we were gonna go assault a, a little village, and then they had us take a completely different turn, maybe off of you know intel from Marcus or something. And so we end up going this one way, and my squad is in charge of clearing this valley. And as we're clearing this valley, So I weighed about two hundred and ninety pounds with all of my stuff. The people that were there, you know, they were buck thirty and they're jumping around these rocks like billy goats. Uh, And we ended up meeting up with some of the locals there and we asked them, you know, where where is this last person? And they told us where he was, but we asked them to take us and they said, no, we can't can't take you the Taliban will kill us so we we pulled up 20 bucks and we're like well will this get us to know where where he's at and uh, yeah he's right over here right so they took us over there and uh, we located axe and we were able to get him back home to his family give the family closure So
1: I mean uh, I, I don't even know where to where to begin with that so those are just two of probably a multitude of experiences that you had during your time in the military before you joined the uh, the, the Border Patrol. Yes, yeah, sir. So during that time, and I'm just gonna go off a couple of these things here. As a result of your, uh, your actions, you were awarded the Bronze Star with the V device, which is for heroism and valor in combat. Uh, your unit received the Valorous Unit Award, which is the second highest US unit decoration, second only to the Presidential Unit Citation. Uh, you've also been decorated with the Army Commendation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, Good Conduct Medal, whole host of things. Purple Heart. Ah, uh, no, sir. Didn't get that. No, sir. Okay, so I guess that uh, that vest really came in handy. It did come in handy. <laughs> well, we're very thankful for that. Uh,
0: I'm very <laughs> thankful, yes, sir.
1: So you have this experience, and while you, those experiences bring you close to the people that you served with, undoubtedly, and you probably saw uh, your share of people injured dramatically, and and also just the psychological things that you've gone through, and uh, I know that that had an impact on you. You and I have uh, have known each other for a few years now, and yes, we served together in the uh, Laredo sector, and uh, and it became something that was a uh, a mission for you because you recognized certain things that were taking place in yourself, and figured that it was probably ha- also happening to other veterans out there, and that prompted you to actually take action. I want you to talk us through how that process went for you. You told me this story a million times, but I want everybody else to hear it. Yes, sir.
0: Okay, so where do I begin? Um, So immediately after that fifth deployment, I knew that I needed to be done uh, deploying. So that started my, I need to get out of the military. I still had two years left on my contract, so I went and taught at long range marksmanship school and sniper school. And I did that for a while with an old company commander that knew me and knew I was going through some tough times um, mentally. So he, he afforded me different opportunities to kind of take care of myself, if you will. So I started the process to get into the Border Patrol about two years prior um, to getting out. And I did that because I knew once the background investigation was done, you know, they were gonna keep your spot for a while. So I, d- I started early. <coughs> And um, when I had my DD-214 in my hand, four days later I was in the, the academy. As you can imagine, I had zero time to decompress, zero time to say, "Wow, like I can't believe I just survived all that." Um, you know, I I had spent close to zero family time. I'd been married for um, just over two years at that point. You know, my wife and I hadn't even gotten comfortable with each other yet because of all my deployments. And, and here I am in the academy. And I remember pulling up to the academy. I was just looking out the window. I'm going to be Joe, <laughs> right? I'm, I don't want to be in charge of anything. Just put me in the back. And, uh, and, of course, the instructor gets on and he looks and he goes, you were in the military. Yes, I was. <laughs> and uh, uh, section leader. So that was actually an extreme blessing for me because I had task, I had purpose, I had you know 40 people I had to look out for and I had been around the block before and I had understood the games that were being played here right and the concepts behind training and things like that and I knew that I could make a difference in my classmates and make it better for us. So none of those things that were weighing on me really came out in the academy. It wasn't until I had gone home and when I was given more free time to you know, watch the paint dry. That's when the bad habits started, the drinking ex- and um, treating my wife like a verbal punching bag and, and all the thoughts and everything else. You know, I was ready to become a statistic to the Border Patrol and to the veteran community. And that was coming very quickly. And about two years into the Border Patrol, I got a call from a friend of mine that worked at the Pentagon. He said, hey, do you want a job? I said, yeah, I'd love to get back in the military, be around, you know, uh, some of that, you know, that atmosphere that I felt comfortable because I hadn't dealt with anything yet. And uh, so I got back into the military, worked at the Pentagon for two and a half years where I had my daughter, and uh, things started to get a little bit better. I started to get a little bit of treatment and a little bit of help, but PTSD was still a big issue. And we came back home, or we came back to Laredo. And uh, when we were in Laredo, about six years, seven years had gone by, and I still hadn't really dealt with it yet. I had done a few things, but not really tried to take care of it. And I was sitting up all night, one night, and I was playing video games. I was on a midnight shift schedule. And I was thumbing through Facebook at probably like four or five o'clock in the morning. And I come across this post from uh, Dan Gary Bai, he was a, a pack of mine at Laredo West Station. I, I respect Dan. Um, He's since retired from the Border Patrol. But I read his post, and his post, you know, it's, it said something beautiful, like, you know, some gave some, some gave all. We need to support our veterans. And uh, then I had this country music song, and it was somebody strumming and singing just those lyrics, right? And I found that at the end of this, this video, I was livid. I was just, I was really mad <laughs> so I started to r- write to Dan I opened up word and I had wrote to him and I kind of put him on blast and the gist of what I had said was you know you say you support veterans but I've been in your ranks for seven years why don't you put your money where your mouth is and actually support a veteran and uh, uh, he wrote back to me, and he was really cool about the whole thing. Thank God.
1: <laughs> was there a moment after he hit Sandra where you like, "Gee, might not should have done that"? Or yeah, so that came the <laughs> next
0: day. So, like I said, it was four o'clock in the morning. I'd stayed up probably a couple more hours, and I woke up at about four o'clock in the afternoon the next day. And that was one of those.
1: Did I just do that?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did I do this morning? Mm-hmm. Like, let me go check. And so I read it over, and I was, I was nice and. You know there's no spelling errors and stuff like that (laughs) so uh but he had wrote me at that time and he said um you know it sounds like you have issues that you want to air to the chief Uh, would you like a would you like an audience with the chief i said of course i would i would love to speak on behalf of the veterans uh to the chief and a bunch of time had passed uh and i hadn't gotten a meeting with the chief or anything and i was working out at the range i was a red shirt firearms instructor, and he came to the range. And I put him through a qual, and then we were cleaning our weapons. And I said, sir, what whatever happened to this meeting with the chief? And he goes, OK. He's like, if I take you to sit in front of the chief, you have to have solutions and not just a bunch of problems. I said, well, sir, I got I have a lot of a lot of solutions. I got a lot of common sense things that we can do. And he goes, yeah, let me hear them. So I, I gave him the very common sense solutions I believe that the Border Patrol could do in order to better support veterans. And he looks at me like I'm a unicorn, and he goes, man, this is incredible." He, he said, "I'm not going to take you to talk to the chief." I'm thinking, "What did I just do?" He, he goes, "I need you to put this all down on paper, and we need to submit this as an issue paper for a potential program in the future." Well, great. <laughs> uh, I'm a knuckle dragon, you know, ranger, not a not an issue paper kind of guy, but I uh, came around to, it, and I wrote my first issue paper. And um, I introduced it to a friend of mine, uh, John Thornton. And uh, John Thornton and I had spent many nights together burning the midnight oil and, uh, you know, drinking beer and talking about how we could help our brothers and sisters in the Border Patrol that were dealing with the same things that him and I were dealing with because of our combat experience. And so I let him read my issue paper and I was totally stoked about this thing. And I gave it to him. And he comes back and he goes, dude. I'm like, yeah. It's like this is horrible <laughs> it's like you can't you can't submit this like nobody's ever gonna buy this you know what I'm gonna write your issue paper for you so he took my ideas and he wrote my issue paper and that's what I ended up submitting. so thank God six years later I can now write a little bit better than what I did <laughs> apparently you're not supposed to write how you talk and uh, at the time I spoke like a redneck so uh,
1: a lot of learning that do. so that uh, that culminated in forming what is today known as the Veteran Support Program. Yes. Sir. So you were the visionary, the author, and it was born from your own experience that you had been dealing with, and you knew there were others out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And instead of internalizing it and just worrying about yourself, you, you, you wanted to get help yourself, I'm assuming. I mean, yes, you wanted to get through this because you know, I can't even imagine. But you also had the wherewithal to think about others that were in your similar situation, and you put that emotion into action. Yes, sir. So today CBP, not just the Border Patrol, has the veteran support program. It's a national program that was started and piloted in Laredo sector through you. Yes, sir. Talk to us a little bit about what the veteran support program is and what it does for the men and women that are in our ranks that have served.
0: Okay, so um, about six years ago, God laid it on my heart to finally write this issue paper and to do this. Um, I thought that I was the height of what needed help in the Border Patrol. Like, in my mind, there was nobody that could have gone through more than me or, you know, dealing with more issues than I was. And so that was the mind frame that I took uh, into it. And in setting this program, I knew others were going through some of the same things, right? So when I had the program ready and I opened up shop and uh, Chief Mario Martinez said, all right, go ahead. Like, we're going to start this thing. Um, When I opened up shop and veterans started feeling comfortable coming to me, I was not ready for what came out of the woodwork. And I quickly realized that there were a lot of folks dealing with a lot of different things, and I very well could be the final call before a very tragic event. And in a lot of cases, I was and I still am a final call prior to a possible tragic event. And um, obviously, when you go through those things and you see other people going through those things, it emboldens you to become more bold. This is needed chief. Help me out here. I'm trying to make sure that your sector is taken care of. People are hurting. You know, people are killing themselves. Like we need to help them, and that was infectious. And thank God, I had great leaders, uh, especially yourself, in in recognizing that this wasn't you know fake. Uh, this was something that was definitely needed by the sector. And um, uh, you afforded me many opportunities to go and to speak. Uh, to the sector chiefs, um, I remember you had me give a presentation to the.
1: Oh, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General, first day, Uh Attorney General, mm-hmm.
0: thank you very much. Sorry. Um, so, but the one encounter that you brought me to was um, a man by the name of John Sanders. He was the COO, and this was his very first trip in as as the COO of CBP, and. He was sitting in front of me and I got five minutes, I gotta spill all this on him. So I'm giving him the stats and I'm showing him what we're doing as as a a veteran support program. And up to this point, every single time I had given presentations, it always ended with, well, how can I help? And I always said the same thing. I just need your support, right? I need you to hold the rope for me while I do this. I need to be given time to continue to help. And that was all I ever said but for some reason this one felt different in my heart and when he said okay what do i need to do to help you so i said, i told him i said sir we have you know 470 veteran agents here in the laredo sector in cbp you have 17000 over 17000 i said if we're dealing with these kind of issues here I said how many people throughout this entire country and your workforce are not dealing with these issues. He looked at me, he goes, okay, send me a bio, send me your SOP, send me what you got. And so I did and I quickly uh, found myself in Washington DC working with uh, the National Resiliency Task Force uh, to set this program up to standardize and nationalize the program uh, CBP-wide.
1: So You gave me at one time, you probably still have some updated ones, Some some pretty staggering numbers in terms of veterans in suicide what are they today?
0: Uh, 22 a day.
1: 22 a day.
0: 22 a day
1: and that commit suicide.
0: Yes sir and if the statistics affect if you just crunch the numbers um, we'll lose about three veterans a year in the Border Patrol alone with the amount of veterans that we have in the Border Patrol and in CBP obviously it's even higher with 17,000.
1: So you're talking about an agency that has in excess of sixty thousand, so close to a third of our workforce is veteran. Yes, sir.
0: And and those numbers are increasing. Uh, walking around and talking to the students here or the trainees here, uh, there are some classes that have upwards of seventy percent are veterans or prior law enforcement, but mostly veterans.
1: People that have put it all on the line in service to this country and feel some effects because of the things they've seen and done that that need our help. Yes, sir. And given help can have a normal life and become very productive members of our outfit and uh, and make an even more meaningful contribution in some ways to the security of this country yes sir you you're
0: talking about men and women that when they were 18 years old said i'm going to join the military and most of them now decided to do that during a time of war they knew what they were getting into and then they get done with their enlistment or their time in the military, or some of them are still in the active you know, reserve and the guard and stuff. But they said, you know what, I'm not done serving. I want to continue to serve my country. These are a different breed of individuals. These are people who want to serve, want to make a difference. And with just a little bit of support being showed to them, they will do amazing things. When I first came in, the border patrol now we've come a long way and i don't want to talk bad about you know anything that was going on back then but the support wasn't there as much hence the program right and it was kind of the mentality of if you didn't do it in the border patrol it kind of doesn't count right and we're starting to change our mindset as a whole on that these things that I learned in the military, they translate into me being in the field sure. and being a good agent. And, and this is the first time this organization has had somebody implement something that puts a bat in the corner of the veteran saying, no, negative. Like, like, yes, this individual might be going through a little bit of whatever PTSD, whatever the case may be. But if we just support them a little bit, we can get that trained asset that they've been you know, trained to be wow, what a force multiplier, and we're recognizing that.
1: It just seems so logical now, looking back, and, and you're right. We, we've evolved, and we continue to grow as an organization. We continue to get better, and you can only get better by acknowledging deficiencies that you have. So one of the ways that we're getting better is, is how we're taking care of our, our veterans and our workforce and, and leveraging their vast experience and their knowledge to the benefit of this organization and this mission, yes, sir. not the least of which is this Veteran Support Program. Tell us a little bit about the things that it does for veterans.
0: Okay, there's there's two main things that the Veteran Support Program, if you took, took it all and you encompassed it in one, two things, we want veterans to have like-minded individuals that they can go talk about things that we really don't feel comfortable sharing with a population. I've had a lot of veterans tell me stories that would probably make most people's skin crawl and they would receive that feedback and facial expressions and oh my god like I can't believe you just said that I can't believe you did that you know where they tell me these stories and I'm right there. I'm with them. I can I can hear what's going on. I can feel, uh, you know, the the fear, the the anxiety, everything that went into that situation. I'm there. So, so when they're telling me, they know that they're not being judged. I want to create that environment uh, for for veterans here. That's number one. So that's the peer support aspect of the program. The second uh, one, which is very important, is I want to be the conduit between federal, state, and local benefits that veterans have earned through their time in the military to receive. When I first came into the Border Patrol, for the first seven years, I didn't even know that Laredo had a VA, right? So you you know I wasn't taking care of myself. You know I wasn't getting what I, I deserved, you know, and where do I go file a claim? Where do I go receive medical treatment how does that whole process work right how do i get my ojt there are so many veterans that are have the amount of time that i have in the border patrol that weren't afforded an opportunity to receive ojt and it's, it's tragic that's a lot of money that they they earned and they weren't given that opportunity or um most i would say most veterans with more time than i would say at least 50 percent have not bought back their time To count towards their own retirement with the Border Patrol. You're exactly right. And it's a very simple process, but it took me nine years to buy back my time. It's a very simple process. But I kept messing up the process on one simple thing, and nobody could tell me what I was doing wrong. And it wasn't until I started the program that I started learning the nuances of the different programs that were out there, the different veteran service organizations. And now when veterans come to me and have an issue, I'm able to sift through what the issue is, give a little bit of education, and then get them in front of the professionals that are able to take care of them. In whatever aspect, counseling, benefits, you know, filing for, to buy back their time. Anything that they need. Yes, sir. And
1: is it safe to say that, so this program goes a long way to helping them find a home here so that they stay with this and they have a a good long career and and they're happy?
0: Uh, Yes, sir, Very, very much so. Our work in the community, the veteran support program is very important so most of us are transplants from other places Mm -hmm. in the country and when i got to laredo laredo wasn't my home and i didn't want to invest my time in a community that you know wasn't mine that i I felt like i had no ownership in how wrong was i in starting this program i got to know a lot of the folks in the community and it was through those relationships that we were able to make real change not just for um veterans in the border patrol but for the community uh, we organized um we organized there was a a navy veteran and this was during your time you you allowed us to go do this uh um there was a navy veteran who had spent i believe eight years in the navy she was a teacher um for 20 years she retired as a teacher and she was living in the projects her house didn't have Um, A washer a dryer she didn't have a stove she didn't have any of that and the veteran service organization that I was working with they reached out to me they said hey Josh I know this is out of your wheelhouse but we have a veteran in the community that needs help and this is what she's dealing with and sent me pictures and I was I was mortified like how can this lady that has served her community and her country be living like this so I was at the Laredo South gym and right before I started working out, I sent out a, a little Facebook message post, you know, hey, there's a veteran in need, and this is what we want to do. We want to buy her a washer, a dryer, and a stove. Any donation is accepted, please. Like, what, what do you got? So I, I work out, 45 minutes later, I come back to my phone, and I probably had like 150 messages and like a bunch of missed calls. And uh, I immediately called George Ramos, and he's like, hey Gil, I got all the stuff. He's like, we got a brand new stove. He's like, we're getting a a washer um, um, donated to us. We're going to pick up this appliance. Um, When are you ready to go deliver this stuff? Is tomorrow work for you? Hey, we're bringing in the Girl Scout troop in, and the Girl Scouts want want to come and talk to her since she was a teacher. And I mean, it was amazing, the outpouring. But when you see that kind of support, it's infectious. Like, you want to stay there. This is my community now, you know? And... uh, we started to develop
1: a home, we laid down roots. And, and so to foot stomp that, and I, you know, I remember this when it happened, but in, uh, in June of 2018, the City of Laredo actually recognized you as the Veteran of the Month for the City of Laredo. Yes, sir. So that's just one of the many accolades, and since then, uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar, he, uh, for your acts of courage in the line of duty, he's, uh, he's honored you. Recognized you officially. You've, uh, you've received the CBP Commissioner's Life-Saving Award along with the Border Patrol Achievement Medal with V-Device for Valor. Yes, sir. So you've not stopped your, uh, your actions since leaving the military and joining the Border Patrol. You continue on to this day in, in, in service to this country. Yes, sir.
0: Uh, I, I go out with a mentality, and this is the mentality that I try to impart on other people that I talk to, and that's never waste an opportunity to help somebody else. We are given a lot of opportunities during the day to do things for other people, whether it's just a smile or an uplifting word. Um, we can kind of get you know, into our own bubbles and, and just forget about other people. But this program has been the help that I've needed. And it wasn't because I've spent all my time in front of healthcare professionals that gave me the help. It's because I was pouring into other people because I was giving the assistance, which was assisting me, and I wasn't me focused. I was others focused. So when I go to work every day, I might have things that are not going right in my life. You know, there's different places that I'd rather be. You know, sure, whatever. Um, but if I focus on that, if I focus on myself, it's not going to help anything. It's not going to help anybody. So every day, I just I want to find what I can do to help. Other people succeed and it's food for my soul.
1: So you're you're one of the neatest people I've ever met not just because of the you know the the things that you've done in the military and then in, in the Border Patrol professionally yeah they're 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 amazing and anybody would absolutely want you beside them going out in the field and out on patrol there's, there's no doubt. More than that though, the, the depth of your character comes from you recognize a need to help others, and you pour yourself one hundred percent into it. And you talk about some of the things that you went through, you know, when you when you came back, and you know the, the family problems and struggles. Uh, today, you're one of the most devout family men I've ever met. You know, you have a wonderful family, wonderful wife, kids, and uh, you're also a very devout Christian. Yes, sir. A very a uh, very active member of your church. You found your home more than just the geographic location of Laredo but in so many other ways. That makes you an example, and to somebody to be emulated by by anybody, not just because of what you do professionally, but because of who you are personally. Everybody around you is better for, for, for getting to know you.
0: Well, I really appreciate that, sir. Thank you very much. I
1: can't think of a better compliment. Well, because of that example you said, I'm gonna ask you to, uh, to talk to the the veterans out there that, that are looking for a transition. If they're, they're interested in, in finding a, the next career. Uh, why would they choose the Border Patrol? Why would they choose CDP? What what does that offer for them? And okay, it's kind of a softball question because we've been talking about these things, but talk to them for a second.
0: Chief, would you mind if I just addressed one thing uh, real quick? Um, I've noticed that in giving my presentation and my history and background and five combat deployments and being in Ranger Battalion, sometimes I can take most of my audience and turn them off because You know i don't have five combat deployments so i don't really understand what you're going through so like none of this help or things like that pertain to me and i've been giving presentations now to some of the classes here and i try to reel them back with this just because you haven't done five combat deployments or you know whatever the case may be doesn't mean that you didn't come into the Border Patrol with history. Sure, We've all had things happen to us, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a tragic event, you know, whatever the case may be, we all have something that we need to work through and we need help. You're not gonna make it through a 20-year, 25-year career, I don't care who you are, and not receive some help along the way. And there is a bad stigma that still exists that I want to start breaking, and that's, you know, I'm weak if I go and seek this help or if I if I get somebody to help me or if I start talking about these issues that I'm having. And it couldn't be further from the truth. So when when you're out there in the field or doing whatever it is, if your brain and mind, that energy is going towards something that is wrong, then you're not here interacting where you need to be interacting. And that could be life-changing out in the field sure. if I don't have my back up thinking 100% of the time. So it's very important. And to anybody that's listening, if if you feel like you need some help, there is no shame in it whatsoever. Please go get the help. And if 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 you know somebody that needs help, be there for them. Talk to them. Don't try and change, you know, don't try to give them advice. Just be there for them and encourage them uh, to, to go get the help. There's no shame in it.
1: Well said. That's another change that we are slowly realizing in the US Border Patrol, probably in law enforcement in general. It's always been something that's been difficult for us to accept and and reach out when we need to. Yes sir. Hopefully we continue to get better.
0: I, I hope so.
1: I think so. Well said. So talk
0: to the veterans. So um, the Border Patrol has been an awesome transition from the military. There are so many aspects of my military life that translate into being a good Border Patrol agent and I've been able to continue to serve, continue to serve my country. Um, this isn't a job. I, when I go home and I take the uniform off, I have pride in what I just did for the last you know, 10 hours. And before I go to work, I'm not going to some job. I'm going to be with men and women that I care about, that I want to be with, that I want to get into the thick of things with. And I have a lot of pride in that. And I have a lot of pride in my military history, but my time in the Border Patrol, and I can't think of anything else that I would rather be doing right now. Not any other three-letter agency, nothing. I want to be a Border Patrol agent. And uh, this is a great job. It is what you make it, just like anything else. There are going to be tough days. But that's what builds character, and that's also why I'm extremely excited about this current generation, and I mentioned it in the beginning, of agents here at the academy. These are men and women that decided to come during a pandemic. These are men and women that have decided to come despite what they see on social media about, um, about agents and officers. Uh, and they have stuck with it. Some of these, some of these trainees have been here a lot longer than the Academy's supposed to be yep. and they said no I'm gonna stay I'm not able to see my family I'm not you know at my sector doing the job I'm here in this training environment which can't, can't help but all. respect that yes yeah. yes very exciting
1: so you're talking to them so the the trainees that are going through or even uh, prospective trainees that are thinking about joining and, and you know what let's talk to our brother and sisters that are out there right now so honor first that's the Border Patrol's motto that's our guiding principle that's something that uh, for us, we hold it very deep. It's it's what guides our actions, our decisions, our judgment, on and off duty. Let's talk to everybody about what honor first means to you. Uh,
0: when I think about honor first, I just I think about serving something that's larger than yourself, putting yourself last. And it's not not thinking about it's not not thinking about yourself ever. It's about just thinking about yourself less. And when when I think about the Border Patrol and serving, I think that that integrity and uh, everything that this uniform stands for is honor first.
1: So, for those that are interested, that are that are members of the U.S. Border Patrol, that uh, want to become involved in the veteran support program, either as a uh, as a, a coordinator or a uh, just a member of the program to help others, how do they go about doing that?
0: Every chief of every sector owns the support programs at, in their sector. Am, am I right? Yes. So a chief doesn't know what a chief doesn't know. If there are people that need help, you need to talk about it. You need to tell your chain of command. And that information needs to flow upwards to the chief. If the chief recognizes, like the chief in Laredo recognizes that uh, the veteran support program is needed, he just put out a memo uh, for for the program. But he knows because the veterans are talking. They're saying, hey, look, we need the help. We need these things and um, so i would start talking if you, if you need help and then just find how you can get plugged in so uh, peer support is a great avenue to get plugged into the veteran support program and just starting to help out uh, the veterans um, i would say you can reach out to me but i'm not about to put my phone number out on this uh, well they can find you on email uh, they can find me on email and i can definitely get them in the right direction we currently have almost I believe it's 300 field coordinators throughout the entire world right now for the Veteran Support Program. And field coordinators are the equivalent of, say, a peer support coordinator Mm -hmm. for a sector or for a program office. And um, underneath them, we have Veteran Support members. So the field coordinators, we're asking that they all be veterans. But the Veteran Support members, we've opened it up to anybody that feels a calling to want to serve uh, the veteran community. They can be part of the members. And the members, it's a collateral duty that they'll just, they'll go to work every day, but they'll be a little bit of hypersensitive, I guess, to maybe some veteran needs, have a little bit of education and the ability to point veterans in the right direction and what they need.
1: Board Agent Josh Gill. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you very much. Sir. I appreciate it.
1: So ladies and gentlemen, if, uh, if you need help, Uh, The Border Patrol, CBP, uh, all kinds of programs out there for you to access. We have the Employee Assistance Program that's uh, that's out there. We have the Peer Support Program. We have the Chaplaincy Program. We have the Veteran Support Program. It doesn't matter. If you need help, each and every one of us are there for you. Reach out and make the call. Don't wait. It's something that we all go through through the course of our careers, 20-plus years. There's going to come a point in time where we all need help. And this idea that We're too proud or somehow weak if we don't ask for help. We just have to get past that. We've lost too many brothers and sisters to suicide. Uh, In the law enforcement profession in general, especially in the U.S. Border Patrol, that needs to stop. It does. We'll talk again soon, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody stay safe out there. Honor first.
0: If you or a loved one need help, don't be shy about asking for that help. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're brave and wise. Sometimes asking for help the bravest and most wise move you can make you don't have to go at it alone and for those of you that are in a good place and don't need any help right now don't waste your opportunities to make a positive impact on the people around you you never know when a nice smile or a kind word can make all the difference in a person's life for more information and if you're watching this video please take a moment to pause the video and write down or screenshot the information below for those of you just listening CBP has a number of programs. CBP has a Veteran Support Program, the Peer Support Program, and the Chaplaincy Program. EAP is also available to assist. That number is 1-800-755-7002, and they have licensed counselors open 24-7. CBP's Veteran Support Program can also be reached by email at cbpvsp at cbp.dhs.gov. And for everyone listening, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is open 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-TALK, or that's 1-800-273-8255. The Veteran Crisis Line is also open 24 hours a day at the same number, 1-800-273-TALK. Then press 1 or text to 838 255. God bless and honor first.